how do you mitigate your risk? Montel's forecasting services cover risks from hours ahead to years ahead. We welcome you to hedge your market exposure with our diverse forecasting portfolio. Contact us at sales@montelnews.com for more info and a free trial. Hello listeners and welcome to the Montel Weekly podcast. Bring your energy matters in an informal setting. In today's pod, we talk about the weather. This year has been the warmest and September the warmest month on record and images of floods, fires and devastation wrought by natural forces bring home the reality of man-made climate change. We will discuss changes in the weather, both long and short term, and especially the outlook for the coming winter. Will we see a return of the beast from the east, for example? I'm Richard Sverson and helping me discuss these issues is Mark Stevens-Rowe, meteorologist at IBM Weather. A warm welcome to you, Mark. Thank you very much indeed, Richard. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. You're based in the part of the UK where a lot of my family live. And actually, I think my grandmother, who turns 99 on Monday, she taught you at primary school. Isn't that right? I believe so. That's right indeed, Richard. Yes. Yeah. And I will hasten to add the view behind me is it's not a view from the, the rolling plains of Suffolk, but actually uh, from my holiday earlier this year in New Zealand, where I was very fortunate to visit. Perfect. Our listeners may not be able to see this view, Mark, but it's nice for us as we're recording this. So that great background to have. But I, I think if we get to it, as I mentioned in the intro here, so 2020 was the warmest year and September the hottest month on record. So What's the outlook for the winter, the coming months, as you see it, Mark? It's um, more of the same, <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> it gets a bit boring for us meteorologists, I think, over the, over the last few years. I will hasten to add that our sort of official winter forecast will be released probably within the next sort of two or three weeks. So this is a very early look ahead. Quite a lot of the indicators that we like to have, if you like, at our disposal for us to sort of give a firmer view on the winter are still sort of generating right now, things like snow cover starting to build across Siberia, for example. But certainly if we look at all the weather models, I'm afraid it's, um, it's a very familiar story. There's, there's an awful lot of pink on the temperature maps and a fair amount of blue on the precipitation maps as well. Is there a sort of sense of regional variation here, is north, south, east, west? For Europe, I'm thinking here. Indeed, yeah. I mean, I, I sort of kind of had a, a more detailed look at the Nordic region in particular as well before our conversation. And Interestingly enough, actually, certainly in the, in the sort of more medium term, shall we say, through much of the rest of October, perhaps even into early November, um, there does actually appear to be a bit of a drying up, particularly on the western side of, of Norway. So we, we will actually see the precipitation levels that look like there come back to nearer or even perhaps even slightly below normal, whereas it appears that it's sort of perhaps more the southeastern part of the Nordic region and then sort of down into parts of Germany, for example, where we're likely to see rather wetter than normal conditions. That's also unfortunately true, I suspect, of, of much of the UK and, and probably much of France and around the sort of northern part of the Alps as well. Temperature-wise, we will actually see uh, temperatures actually a little bit below normal, particularly in that western and, and sort of northwestern part of Europe. The further sort of east you go, and certainly in the, in the earlier part of October, we've, we've already seen very warm temperatures that looks set to continue through much of the rest of the month as well. So rather sort of cooler in Western Europe, generally rather warmer in Eastern Europe, sort of almost holding on to summer-like conditions in, in some parts of, of Europe there. As we head a bit further into the winter, 
then the signal changes, I think, a little bit. And I would suspect we might see a bit more of a north-south rather than east-west divide there developing. In some sense, maybe, you know, more of the same for the hydropower producers in the Nordic region, but maybe slight relief on the, on the one, for those on the, on the western side of the country. Yeah, that's right. And certainly at the moment, what we've seen is really September having um, a pretty substantial and strong positive NAO. Uh, North Atlantic Oscillation. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are probably, uh, you know, kind of familiar with that term. It really kind of describes the strength and positioning of the jet stream. So if we have a positive NAO, it tends to be you know, maybe typically where it should be, but probably rather stronger than normal. And that always pretty much uh, exclusively means wet and mild weather across the northern half of Europe and typically windy weather as well. Pretty much on the cusp right now, we are actually seeing a switch into a more negative NEO regime starting to take over. So what that probably does mean is the jet stream is actually going to shift away a little bit from its, you know, shall we say, climatologically normal position, probably head a little bit further south. And that means that the rain bearing systems are going to be that, that little bit further south, which is why it looks like we're going to see a bit of a drying up on the west coast of Norway, for example. But we may well find much of kind of central Europe in particular does see some, some rather wetter weather. That's not, of course, especially good news for France, where, mm. um, yeah, I mean, us meteorologists, I think, have been clawing back through the, uh, the record books. Uh, I mean, I saw some, I think it was a place in Italy, recorded 650 millimetres of rain in something around 24 hours. Wow. Putting that into perspective, that's, con- that's quite a lot more than we'd normally get in a year in the eastern part of, uh, of the United Kingdom, for example. So, yes, it, it's very, very disastrous flooding there. And Certainly looks like they're going to get some more of that. For the skiers out there, though, uh, if you're actually allowed to go skiing, that is, of course, this coming winter, probably quite good news because there's, I think, a fair bit of early snowfall falling on the Alps as, uh, because the temperature is a little bit depressed and we are getting that precipitation there as well. So it's certainly going to start to sort of put down a fairly early snow cover, at least onto the higher parts of, of the Alpine regions, which obviously for hydro reserves there will, will be pretty good news. I mean, I think on the slopes, it's fairly socially distanced, but maybe not in the lifts and the, and the bars of, uh, of certain parts of um, Italy or Austria or, you know. But Mark, as, you, as you mentioned France, I wanted to talk to you about the Storm Alex. There's some dramatic images here and a reminder of the, the power of nature, the impact of the weather system. I mean, six and a half metres of rain in 24 hours is, is quite extraordinary. And I, I think... Has there ever be, ever been anything like this on record in this in this part of the world? Yeah, and it's, it's actually sixty five centimeters. Not sorry, sixty five centimeters. So yeah, you know, think... my maths <laughs> math is not great. Uh, Mark. No, don't, don't worry about it. Yeah, I think yeah. the uh, uh, it, actually in world rec- world record terms, it's actually you know there, there are there are places that have had far more than that in the tropical regions in the past. But yeah, I mean it's um, clearly an exceptional storm. I mean, I've I've heard once a century. Some people have, have have said even more than that in terms of what's called the return period of a storm like this. We need to be a little bit careful though, because these type of events at this time of year are actually pretty common. These sorts of storms developing coming in off the Atlantic and kind of taking that track down into that part of Europe. You know, it, it, it's something that we would expect every year. What I think has been unusual about this one, of course, is, is its intensity. And that's probably a combination of factors. We are seeing that the sea surface temperatures around much of Western and Northwestern Europe and, of course, down in the Mediterranean are, you know, really rather higher than they would normally be at the end of September, early October. When, to be honest, they are typically pretty high. You know, they actually usually peak sometimes at sometime around about the early part of September or so. 
following the heat of the summer. So what we're seeing, if you like, is a bit of a sort of a delayed peak and that peak staying pretty high for that much later in the season. What that means is when you start to get some of these cold outbreaks coming out of the Arctic, the very first sort of cold incursions of air, if you like, it makes the atmosphere incredibly unstable because that cold air is passing over water, which has still really got a lot of energy in it. And what, what that tends to do, of course, is to really sort of kind of pep up the weather system. So those low pressure systems that uh, you know, would, would have been there in, in any typical autumn end up being you know, a few millibars deeper than they might otherwise have been and actually just containing that much more moisture. And when it takes that track, one of the problems is, is that you actually funnel that really warm, moist air right up over those southern part of the alpine regions. That lifts the air up, and that's always a recipe for uh, huge amounts of rainfall to come cascading out of the sky. So to coin a phrase, it's pretty much a perfect storm, if you like. And it, it, it's just that we seem to be seeing more of those type of events happening because of this, this warming background where the oceans in particular are hanging on to the warmth that much later into the season. So it's almost inevitable, if you like, that you see this kind of activity start to happen. That's going to be my next question, Wei Mark. I mean, is this something we can expect more of at this time of year over the coming years? It will always depend on, on the patterns at the time. You know, we don't have to go back to too many autumns. I was only thinking this actually a couple of days ago when I was uh, in my camper van, which was being <laughs> rocked by howling winds coming out of the north uh, down the east coast of the UK. The temperature was about 11, 10, 11 degrees Celsius, you know, streaming rainfall. The same time of year, I think probably going back four or five years or so ago now, we actually had the temperatures in, in the high 20s. In fact, it, it very, got very close to 30 degrees on the 1st of October. So it's not necessarily the case that we'll always expect to see these kind of storms. And the general background, if you like, of, of weather patterns at the time of year will determine, if you like, the likelihood of you getting one of these sorts of events happening. But at the end of the day, the world keeps spinning. It's, it's tilted up at its angle of 22, 23 degrees. So we have the seasonal impact. We, we transition from summer into autumn every year and autumn into winter. And although the winters generally, um, you know, in particularly in the last sort of seven or eight years or so in Northwest Europe have been, you know, really pretty benign, if, if not exceptionally mild, especially last winter, and of course, at times very wet, it's almost inevitable that some cold ones will get thrown in there. And you mentioned the beast at the east in, in the introduction. Of course, that particular event happened right towards the end of the winter, but it actually happened in what until that point had been an incredibly mild winter. It made it a bit of a sort of a double shock, if you like, coming right at the end of the winter and in the middle of what had been a very mild winter. So those type of events are still going to happen. They'll probably just happen less often. You know, I mean, that's probably the reality of it. So us, us snow lovers, I'm afraid, will probably see rather less of those those sorts of events but to a degree when they do happen they'll probably cause you know even more consternation and disruption because they're they're seen to be so relatively unusual many sort of recent summers have also seen heat waves droughts low river levels very high temperatures for for rivers that are used for for cooling power plants is this something also that we can expect more of? I mean, it seems to be happening more regularly over the previous sort of five, 10 years than it did to the, the previous 10 years. Well, absolutely. And again, the statistics speak for themselves. You know, at the UK Met Office are one of the world leaders in this sort of kind of climate change research. And certainly a lot of the analysis that they've been producing over this past summer 
is suggesting that the types of summer that we've seen, you know, over recent years are absolutely likely to occur, you know, much more frequently. You know, something that's considered now to be a freak will be average, you know, normal, um, probably within 50 years or less. And at the moment, of course, we're, we're actually only seeing typically global temperatures are somewhere, you know, around about 1.2, 1.3 degrees Celsius above, you know, the kind of pre-industrial normal that often gets referred to. And there are many scenarios that suggest at the moment, unless things really do change quite dramatically, we, we could be heading for two or three degrees Celsius above that by the end of this century. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost inevitable that we will see these sorts of extreme events. You know, again, here in the UK, we've, we, we just seem to keep on breaking that extreme temperature record, you know, virtually every year. I mean, this, this past summer has not been anywhere near as good as the previous one in, in, terms of, in terms of average temperatures on a monthly basis. Indeed, July actually was slightly below normal, you know, relative to a 30-year normal here in the UK. And yet we still managed in July <laughs> to actually get what was the third highest temperature ever recorded, you know, thrown in at the end of the month. In August, again, I think we, we had virtually near record-breaking temperatures. So these sorts of events uh, are, are absolutely, you know, likely to become that much more frequent. We will see the rivers obviously responding to that in attaining very high levels and, and keeping them, you know, at high levels throughout the summertime periods. But I think to me, as a meteorologist, what I find is the most remarkable are the changes. It's one extreme to another. And particularly in much of Northwestern Europe, it seems like a distant memory looking out my window at the driving rain again now. But, uh, you know, we, we've had at times, you know, incredibly long periods of dry weather. This spring was one of the driest and sunniest in much of Northwestern Europe ever recorded. And then it's almost like the atmosphere throws a switch and we then head into a period of unremitting rain. And then we've had a switch back again. And certainly here in, in the southeastern part of the UK, you know, we had a phenomenally dry weather throughout much of the latter part of August and through into September. And then it's not stopped raining for two weeks. <laughs> so it's, um, we don't seem to get these kind of very benign conditions anymore. You know, normal doesn't happen. It, it's either very wet or very dry. I mean, uh, it's also incredibly worrying then if that's the, the outlook towards the end of the century. And I think that's what's... Uh certainly being discussed in Brussels and in governments probably across the world at the moment. But back to the weather, Mark. I mean, I see you talk on, on social media about a quiet sun. What is that? And does that increase the likelihood of what we mentioned earlier, the beasts from the east? I mean, effectively, at the moment, we are just starting to come out of a solar minimum. I'm sure many of your listeners may be aware there's uh, like an 11-year cycle in, in solar activity that's usually measured by looking at the number of sunspots, the number of these little black patches that you can see on the sun. And typically, over an 11-year cycle, you go from a peak to a trough and back to a peak again. This current sort of solar cycle that we're in, the previous peak was actually a very low and relatively short-lived one compared to previous peaks. The current trough is actually, again, a very prolonged and a very sort of kind of flat trough, as it were. But we, we're just now starting to sort of kind of come out from that. A lot of work over many years has shown a link, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, between what I refer to as a quiet sun, i.e. a lack of this solar, this sunspot activity, and frequency of relatively, relatively cold winters. Now, certainly the last couple of winters that we've had when we've been near the bottom of that cycle, you know, that's, that's not matched that at all. I know our own seasonal team, I think, put quite a lot of weight in the last winter forecast on 
the quiet sun on, on the fact that we were at the bottom of this peak. But it's interesting actually that quite a lot of the work shows that the, the clusters of cold winters actually tend to occur just after <laughs> that sort of quiet sun period. And, and some of the really severe weather we had 2009 and particularly 2010 in much of Northwest Europe, clearly that sort of kind of corresponded with just coming out of the, of, of the previous one. Now, of course, we are at the end of the day in a, in a bit of a different scenario now with this background, if you like, of, of climate warming. And it may well mean that linkages that we felt worked in the past may not work so, so well anymore. But for sure, there are still quite a number of scientists out there who do think that the fact that the sun is relatively quiet and we're only just going to start to slowly come out of that will play a part. For many years, actually, it was a bit confusing. We could see this statistical linkage. It was, it was significant, but we weren't really sure why, because there's not actually that much of a change in the actual radiative output of the sun between the, the top and the bottom of this cycle. But in fact, the Met Office found about 10 years or so ago now that there actually is quite a change in a particular spectrum of radiation reaching the top of the atmosphere from the top to the bottom of the cycle. And it appears to be that which influences warming in the stratosphere, way above the surface of the planet. And that what seems to be the linkage. It, it, it has a tendency to generate more of these negative NAO events, and therefore in winter, correspondingly more of these relatively cold outbreaks of air, like the beast from the east. The beast from the east, incidentally, I think most people would in, in the world of weather would agree was nothing to do with quiet sun and everything to do at that time with what was a dramatic stratospheric warming event. We often get these towards the end of winters, and the one that occurred that year was, was pretty phenomenal and actually led to this, this huge outbreak of cold air from Siberia at that time. It's fair to say that um, there's been a massive growth in offshore wind across, north, especially North Europe. This is set to continue. I'm thinking of the UK plans, uh, Dutch plans, French, etc. And given then the European Union's ambitious strategy for, for hydrogen, could maybe see that boosted even more. And at the same time, we're also seeing an increasing number of cables being built across this region. I'm just wondering, what is the general offshore wind pattern here? And what will that say for, for the flow of power on these interconnectors? I mean, does, does wind generally, you know, go from west to east or the other way around? Yeah, I mean, it's something certainly as a meteorologist, I, I get a little concerned about. I mean, our, our own beloved Prime Minister, obviously, this week has been making enormous you know, and expensive promises around uh, wind generation for the UK. And of course, we have seen really quite significant shifts in wind patterns over the last decade or so as the rest of the weather, if you like, has, has, has kind of sort of responded to the background change of the background warming. So it is more than possible that changes in the jet stream, changes therefore in the path of the intensity of low pressure systems that affect Northwest Europe will change the distribution of, of where we get you know, wind. And I think one of the problems that we've had, again, in much of Northwest Europe in recent years is that is this sort of kind of switch in patterns where instead of a nice steady background generation of wind, you get long periods of no wind and then suddenly long periods of an enormous amount of wind and sometimes too much wind, of course, if these big storms, you know, like an Alex or, or whatever, the, you know, the name of the storm might be, come across your offshore wind farm, you know, you may well find you're actually having to take that farm off the grid because the winds are up over 25 meters a second and likely to cause issues to the farm itself. I mean, certainly in terms of these patterns, we are, I think, seeing 
more, if you like, more extreme, windier spells in the sort of kind of more southern parts of you know the North Sea, so around southern North Sea waters off Belgium, off the Netherlands, off the UK, and perhaps you know maybe even slightly fewer of them the, the further north that you are, you know, relative to some background long-term normal. But I think that that's there's going to be a huge amount more work needed to to understand how changes in the jet stream and, and changes in these these cyclonic systems, you know, kind of feed into into wind energy generation. I actually attended a very interesting event organized by the Royal Meteorological Society recently, and the research there was was looking into these what are called extratropical storms and their frequency and their tracks and so forth and how that is that is changing. So I'm sure some of that work will be being used to understand where is it now sensible to put these wind farms because it may have been obvious to build them in Scotland in the past. Maybe not so much anymore. Maybe there are other parts you know, of the United Kingdom or different parts of Germany or France where you may find there's actually going to be a better wind resource than, than there has been hitherto. And does the density of these wind parks, does that have, have something to say as well? Does that sort of slow down or lessen the wind resource? I mean, you know, they can't all, they can't all generate from the same gust of wind, as it were. Yeah, I, I've been asked this question before, and it, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, I, I think, you know, if, if you were to actually look at the amount of, shall we say, energy taken out of the weather by a wind farm compared to the, the general overall energy of a weather system, I mean, it's, it's tiny, tiny fractions. Okay. But that, of course, said, you know, the reality is, is there must be some sort of impact. You know, you, you look at something like the London Array, where you literally have hundreds of these farms in a relatively, you know, kind of compressed area, then for sure, in theory, there could be an argument to say, actually, that is taking energy away at a height. I'm not sure how high they are, somewhere between sort of 80, 100 meters or something like that. You know, you're, you're actually kind of removing some energy out of the weather system. And therefore, does that you know, have a potential change on the climate? I think some work has been done on this, particularly on onshore farms in, in parts of the Western US. I have seen a little bit of work done on that. And they tend to rely on, on a different kind of weather pattern for their wind generation. So I would suspect in terms of the way in which the weather patterns that tend to generate the wind, the wind energy that we see in Northwest Europe, it's probably not going to make any difference. Whereas I could see there could be some parts of the world where they're relying on a particular type of weather pattern to develop, particularly what, they, what are called these low-level jets that actually form up sometimes actually overnight. They actually generate the wind, the wind power. And I think if they've, if they've kind of taken some of that energy out with a farm in one location, it is quite possible that they could actually sort of reduce the resource somewhere else, you know, not too far away. So you do need to be careful how closely you start to put some of these farms. Mark, lastly, this weekend I'm heading off north of Oslo, anyway, up near Lillehammer for a, for a weekend in a cabin with some friends. Should I take my skis or my wellies? <laughs> Gosh, how high are you going, Richard? I think uh, about nine hundred meters. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, I, I think actually your skis might be worthwhile in that case. Then, certainly at the moment, the temperatures are looking to be a little bit below normal in the sort of central western part of Norway. So. I think if you know you're you're going to be quite close, I suspect, to the freezing level at 900 meters. But I would I would hope if you got a little bit higher than that, you should certainly find some snow up there by now. It's coming early. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, Mark. Thanks very much for a fascinating insight into so certainly the underlying patterns of what's driving the weather 
currently in the short term and, and in the long term. So thank you very much, Mark. No problem. Good to talk to you again, Richard. Take care. That's all from the Monto Weekly Podcast this week, listeners. You can follow the podcast on our own Twitter account called the Monto Weekly Podcast. Please direct any messages, suggestions, questions, or let us know if you'd like to be a guest. You can also send us an email to podcast at Montel News. Please uh, subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast from. And it'd be great if you could leave us a review. Thank you very much and goodbye.